You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Reynard walks cloaked through the neighborhood. One of his hands is running against everything he walks by, shrubs, trees, a wooden fence with each slap tut-tutting his dirty fingers. The other hand holds a cigarette, just one lonely cancerous star, tobacco an almost unusual sight in San Francisco nowadays. The last two cigarettes are seen with banished boyfriends on rusted out balconies or petulant white collars with defiant plumes in lunch break parks. Small huddled masses under the awnings of bars like the last gatherings of the faithful. Reynard, of course, is not a man of faith. He is not a vicar or a husband or even a fiancé. He is the possession of the ghost of a fox. Daniel Handler is the author of All the Dirty Parts, We Are Pirates, Why We Broke Up, Adverbs, Watch Your Mouth, and The Basic Eight. As Lemony Snicket, he wrote a lot of unfortunate books for very fortunate children in this day and age (laughs) his new novel is bottle grove thank you for joining me daniel my pleasure this novel begins with a marriage but in a sense it's about a lot of marriages between things that are sometimes similar sometimes very different yeah i think it's about um the idea of what being married means and what we attach ourselves to and we attach ourselves to another person or an institution or a city and about um, the kind of civilizing influence that we crave sometimes to attach (laughs) ourselves to something and how that doesn't always go the way we want. You know, uh, the wedding that begins this novel is a wonderfully staged piece. It takes place in... uh, Bottle Grove. So explain to us about where what Bottle Grove is in the novel and also in San Francisco in the real lexicon. I mean, how it fits into it. Um, well, in the novel, Bottle Grove is a kind of scraggly park where there are some outdoor concerts and where there's a little uh, clubhouse to get married in. and But it is mostly kind of untended woods and wilderness. Um, and San Francisco has quite a few of those parks. It's not, I think, what a lot of people think of when they think of a park in a city, which they think of something very manicured and, um, you know, spacious and uh, well-lit and safe-feeling. And San Francisco has a lot of small, scraggly, untended pieces of land where no nothing is ever going to be built, but neither is anyone really watching over it that carefully. And um, it was... Bottle Grove was inspired by Stern Grove, which is a real... Um, Grove in San Francisco, but um, actually when I was in conversation uh, with my editor about this book, and I was, she was talking about this part where I described very detailedly the location of Stern Grove in San Francisco, and she said, you know, I can't follow this, and also, I've never heard of Stern Grove, and I'm never going to set foot in Stern Grove, and who cares, really, (laughs) about Stern Grove, and it was a very illuminating conversation, because I began to think, oh yes, who does care, and so then really inspired by uh, Rebecca Solnit's multi-layered atlas of San Francisco, where she looks at San Francisco according to a different, all different angles of various prisms. Um, I thought, I'm just going to make up a park in San Francisco. And as soon as I did that, I realized that I could play with the San Francisco landscape um, in much the same way that um, the novel is tackling. The novel is talking about a changing San Francisco and the changing landscape of San Francisco, and it just seemed pretty perfect. Um, there's now an image on, of a fox on the cover of the novel, but one of the um, early cover ideas was this, um, just the skyline of San Francisco. And when they showed it to me, I said, this is an old picture. San Francisco doesn't look like this anymore. <laughs> and so they found a current picture and they said, well, if we put that on the cover, no one will know it's San Francisco. And I thought, exactly, that's where we are right now, <laughs> is that we have this imaginary skyline, you know, dominated by the Transamerica uh, building and Coit Tower, and then we have what is actually happening with much taller, kind of more arrogant and maybe less interesting buildings, although some of them are beautiful, um, that have changed the landscape. And so it made the most sense to me to be able to bring up a fictional park. Well, I think that uh, this points to 
one of the wonderful aspects with this novel. There's a, a bit of the supernatural in it, but in terms of that, I think what's so great about the horror genre and anything that has kind of supernatural where you're making stuff up is that it allows you to externalize things that otherwise might be concealed. If some, if you have a, a story, say, where Frankenstein, he makes a monster, it's on one hand, it's a monster, but it's also, it's what we make of ourselves. Sure, too. yeah. And, and you do that to the city in a sense. You make it up. You well, thank you, you. Yeah, I mean, I was you reinvent it, so um, it's more more itself. Yeah, well, it was really. I mean, I was walking around San Francisco thinking about this book and drafting it, and um, a fox crossed my path in my own neighborhood. Um, I'd never seen a fox before in my neighborhood, and now I see them pretty frequently. We see foxes and coyotes and um, other creatures displaced by all of the newness that's happening in San Francisco. I mean, I grew up in this town. I never saw a coyote until a few years ago, and now I see easily one per month. And um, particularly with the fox, I just began reading about foxes, and um, they're embedded so deeply in so many different cultures of folklore, and always in the same way. They're very sneaky. They're very stealthy. You know, you can if you look at... Um, uh, Native American legends about a snake and African legends about a snake, you'll see totally different personalities. But the fox, even when it's really different species of fox and different looks of fox, wherever there are foxes, the culture has made up a story about them in which they're devious and sneaky and amoral. And that was really interesting to me. And, I mean, as you say, um, we don't always call them horror novels or supernatural, whatever you want to call them, but you know, the oldest books that we have are all strange. The oldest stories all have that kind of externalization. You know, we don't have... Um, Myths and fables. Yeah, and we don't have riveting domestic realism about ancient Greece, but we have a <laughs> lot of really supernatural stuff that can make us think about our own domestic real-life situations. And so I'm drawn more and more to books... Um, and to explorations for my own writing that um, touch upon that unknown and that externalization. You have such a wonderful way of creating characters and peoples with a, just a brush of your hand. And there are so many incredible sentences in this book. It is just <laughs> like one, like underline it and read it aloud to your wife <laughs> sentence after another. Uh, is that natural or did, was this was this boiled down i like the structure of your question which was 12 compliments in a row and then a softball question this is very <laughs> um is it natural well i i like a sentence mm -hmm. i started out in poetry when i was um young and um and so the detail to to individual words and lines was always part of my own education as a writer and um yeah, I mean, I just write a horrible draft and I print it out and I wander the city and I go sit someplace and I cross out 90% of the sentences and trying to make them better. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, a, a weird sentence is interesting to me. I like that. Talk about uh, the the marriage and the, the wedding scene that starts the book. It, it's very funny and also kind of dark. You do a good job of, there are a lot of, really funny parts of this book. There are sweet characters that we like, but everybody is like, there's, it's like there are thorns and razor blades in, embedded in all the characters. Yeah, they have a pretty rough time of it overall, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, the wedding, it feels to me like so many weddings feel, which is that there's, um, everyone's happy and there's something being celebrated, but there's also kind of a lot of personal drama going on in the corners and as the party rages on and people are drunker it becomes uh less of a celebration and something a little um, harder to pin down and so um there's a wedding and then there's some um uh there's some people go off to the amphitheater which is uh outdoors and uh fool around and they're the wrong people to fool around, and um, tempers flare up, and uh, 
it kind of goes from there. But the idea that, um, that I think we have of marriage as being something that kind of tamps down on all of our crazy impulses um, is an interesting one to me. And that's really, you know, where marriage came from. We, as a society and a culture, figured out that we should link people in some official way to try to keep track of family structures and passion and all kinds of um, strange urges and assignations. And um, to, to the extent that that works and doesn't work is really interesting to me. And it feels like so much of what I was thinking about with San Francisco that um, as the uh, corporate juggernaut of um, tech and other related industries, Kind of pour money into this town it gets smoothed out often it gets kind of corporatized and less interesting and there's still these kind of freaky wild parts that are um undefeatable and are you know and like a fox have to figure out where they're gonna thrive and figure out what their plan is in the new regime you use the phrase i think civilizing influence <laughs> yeah and i think that that's an interesting phrase because one of the things i've always thought is that when we look at the city, we say the, this, these are the parts that are civilized, say the houses, and then the park that you refer to is, is, is natural. Right. But uh, for me, I've always thought, well, uh, we built these cities. We're, we're certainly as natural as anything else on God's gray earth. <laughs> these are, all these are the antis. Yeah, one I think, uh, you know, America in particular liked to set up immediately upon colonizing this land a huge gap between you know there were some natural people here and then we brought civilization <laughs> is the myth and um even when the the myth is fought against there's still kind of a notion that there's something um invasive about certain kinds of culture and something um natural about other kinds and um yeah, I like to think about that. I mean, um, the parks we're talking about in San Francisco, natural is one word for them, but they're also, you know, by government ordinance, kept bare of buildings. That's not, <laughs> that's not how it happened in the early days of the formation of this planet. There weren't government ordinances keeping the trees growing. They just grew. And so, yeah, I mean, I liked I, the... A couple of times in the novel, people refer to marriage as a civilizing influence, and I think that that's a certain very common myth about marriage, right? You settle down, <laughs> you're, um, you, have a, you, know, you start a family, and that you're in control in some way. You're no longer gallivanting around in your wild youth, and um, to the, the extent that that's true and not as interesting to me. I, we meet some really great characters in, in this book, and I was particularly drawn to Paget. She she's kind of a, a drifter a bit in the wedding and, and she initially starts talking with a man named Martin who runs a bar and he's kind of like the the remora of the of the tech revolution in that he's yeah. hanging off the ends of I mean a little bit he the uh, novel is in, uh, dedicated to this uh, guy Daniel Hyatt who um, was a real barman um, was a real bartender and um, was kind of a um, uh, like a like a somewhat blue collar background and a um, and a big uh, reader but kind of a wild guy too like a like and he was dedicated to making fancy cocktails he was always kind of soaking the pomegranates in the bourbon and making his own licorice bitters and kind of exploring all of that and. He ran this bar for a long time, Alembic, and he was he was trying to figure out how some of the enormous money that was pouring into the city could just kind of come into his pocket <laughs> a little bit. And um, I liked him, and when I was working on the novel, the, the character of Martin is um, inspired by Daniel Hyatt in no uh, enormous way, but, and I always thought maybe Daniel Hyatt will read this book when it's done, he'll get a kick out of it, and then... He died very young, um, and he made his own dubious personal choices for sure. But I like thinking that his dream of kind of having one foot in the wild, freaky, individual part of San Francisco and yet kind of reaching 
toward the wallet of the uh, successful corporate thing was just an unrealizable dream. And so Paget, as you say, is the kind of heroine of the novel, and she hangs out with this bartender for a while, and he kind of cooks up a plan for her to pursue this tech mogul. And, um, and that's where one of the other marriages comes in, and the idea of marriage is a long con, and, and you know, you read about whether people are marrying for money or not, which is a very new worry in the history of marriage, right? Most of the history of marriage, it went without saying that you were marrying for money. <laughs> exactly. That's what it was for. Yeah. And now in, you know, tiny culture, parts of the culture of the first world, it's shocking to even mention money as a part of getting married. And so Paget, you know, pursues this tech mogul who is full of money and while supposedly Martin is going to get some of that money as soon as that plan goes into fruition, and like a lot of um, of those types of plans, <laughs> the postman always rings twice comes to mind. It's not always a great plan to cook up something that way, um, and it's exactly the sort of ramshackle scheme that sometimes works but often falls apart disastrously. I I love the the way that in, in this book that. You create uh, San Francisco really where literally anything can happen and where everything seems like it's a little bit coming apart at the seams. And to talk about how working that in through your plot, because I think the plot to this book, I mean, is really a page turn. It's very intense. and But it, it feels like a page turner that's like, set on a fry pan and all the characters kind of had to get a hot too hot. Yeah, well, I mean, the the kind of twin inspirations were some of these old tales that I'm talking about mm-hmm. and um and kind of the noiry uh con man schemes of um of a certain kind of literature and both those things move really quickly. You know, if you are reading an old Japanese folktale and two pages get stuck together and you turn the page you will have missed, you know, two murders, a mad affair, a shape-shifting, and 500 years of someone going to sleep or something. They're very fast-moving. And so I was really aware of the time to try to make that pace. And I think um, San Francisco feels quick in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly now that changes in San Francisco are happening so quickly, but... um, because we're on this little peninsula and there's not what we call sprawl in San Francisco proper... There are a lot of things just on top of one another. You know, there's neighborhoods where two cultures are laying down groundwork and networks and tracks at the same time. Um, It's always fun to kind of wander around downtown San Francisco and watch visitors' confusion that it felt like a strip of old Italy and then two blocks later it felt entirely Chinese and then you take a walk and it's just all kind of the banking industry going out for lunch and um, I like how jammed together stuff is in San Francisco and I'm a lifelong San Franciscan and um, you see where things have been jammed together and are kind of falling apart a lot so I was swimming this morning at the Dolphin Club which is um, down by Aquatic Park it's an old building that's been there since the, the building's uh, uh, old WGA building, but the um, the Dolphin Club has been there since the 19th century, and people have been swimming and right where I swim most mornings, the same place. And um, on one hand, it's that's incredibly weird to even think about that. Yeah, because I mean, there's it's crazy, and it's right near super touristy parts of San Francisco where nobody goes. You know, it's two blocks from Ghirardelli Square, which no local San Franciscan ever sets foot in, <laughs> and even forgets is there. And then, you know, my friend and I were swimming together and we were followed by a sea lion for a little part of the way. So that's another kind of wild and freaky part of San Francisco that doesn't happen. So I like those seams um, that come together. And when you think about old things and the supernatural, that's always the way, right? It's always the crossroads where you are calling for the devil. It's always um, October, supposedly, where the veil between the actual world and the supernatural is at its thinnest you know it's these it's these times of transition and these seams where all the spooky stuff comes from and it strikes me too that of course the 
uh, you know, titanic monolithic differences in the amounts of money that people have and that exist in any one like one street to the next would create those kind of schisms, those areas where the veil of reality is is ill-defined and yeah, not absolutely. easily to discern. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... Um, and a bar is a great <laughs> example of that, right? That exactly. um, kind of the core audience of a bar is alcoholics, <laughs> you know, and you need to kind of be a place where people can kind of take shelter and drink alone or kind of chummily drink. And yet you also want to kind of spruce it up and have people come in and order something that costs $20 that was made with three local tinctures. And, um, and so the, uh, when I was thinking about all these different people in San Francisco and the idea of marriage and kind of where everyone could gather and run into each other, a bar seemed like a good place to do that. Well, Paget is drinking quite a bit at the beginning of the book, and I love the way that you you track her consciousness because you really get the feel of somebody who's just barely tuning in and out to parts of their own lives, and and I think that 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 happens too in in a place where there's so much money that sometimes you're just all you can think about is oh my god, look at how stunningly expensive or beautiful that is. I'd love to. No, I've got to go back and have some potato chips. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's the exact same kind of consciousness we're talking about. It's two things layered on top of one another, right? And that, um, and so that the use of alcohol in the book felt that way to me. You know, on one hand, um, alcohol gets you out of yourself, to, you know, it makes you act in ways that you don't think of as yourself. On the other hand, there's some notion that whatever you said when you were really drunk is true. It's how you really feel. That's the real truth. The real you, you know. Yeah. And um, I hope not. I was like that. I I'm a fan of this little book by Bernard Devoto called The Hour, which is about cocktail hour. Um, it's actually a book that I gave Daniel Hyatt, the bartender. That's um, how we kind of became pals. But um, he reminds us that um, bars start fights and end wars. You know, that you, <laughs> wow. right? And right then I was there. like, that isn't really, it's totally true. It's like, you sit down with the other emperor yeah. when, the, when the war is over and you both have a little cognac together to celebrate this like monstrosity that's finally over. And yet, that's probably how it started was two guys on neighboring stools had a little too much and before they know it, they're swinging at each other. So, um yeah, so alcohol, which can be kind of a civilizing influence or kind of a wild uh, card, um, was something that felt like it needed to go in here. You know, I have to say, too, that um, this book, the, the, the things that happen in this book are um, almost of a mythic scale, but even when they're at the lowest level of what's, what's going on, it, re it read in a way, I was thinking about... In the the plotting of this book and the plotting of, of the 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 lemony snake books and I said not so different are they yeah <laughs> I would totally agree <laughs> there's less drinking in lemony snake books yeah. but only a little less not not no drinking um, yeah well I mean I think that the the reason why fairy tales and um, fables, I think, often appeal to children is that they have this outsized quality that you're very familiar with as a child, right? You're upset about something that no one else cares about, right? You lost your little trinket, something broke, somebody was mad at you, you know, and when you're a child, you're upset about so many things that people don't understand. And that's a big part of a series of unfortunate events is like, our gym teacher is really evil and no one's paying attention. But when you're a child and you have a horrible teacher that can be so stressful and so traumatic to you and they um, are evil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. And then, um, I think, uh, in bottle grove, there's the notion that this barman's con to try to get a lot of money out of a tycoon is some huge plot when really it's just kind of three people not being very nice to each other. That's all it is. Um, and the rising and falling of um, some of the big businessmen in the book also has that quality because, of course, the money is fictitious. Exactly. Right? And that San Francisco is full of these stories. As someone who runs a company that's never made any money has just bought a $20 million home. And I think particularly if 
you are not in that world at all, if you don't have that kind of money and you don't know anybody who has that kind of money, it really feels like something in a fairy tale, right? Because where is the money? How do you bring the sack of money to the realtor to buy a $20 million home if you're in charge of something that never brings in any money? You know, and if you did that as a bar, you'd be out of business. And if you did it as a company that's kind of thinking about stuff, you could do it for your, for your whole life and retire as a guru and genius. You know, uh, there's a sack of money in this book. and <laughs> There is. I, when you were thinking about that, I think, boy, what a great device. How, how It's really beautiful to use. I had not thought of that before. And that, that kind of thing, you know, you see almost like the fox walking down the street with a stick and a sack of money. Yeah. And that, um, you know, money and cash are less and less accessible to people. Sure. Right? And that... Um, and less useful, too. Yeah. I mean, um, just a couple of nights ago was a um, party and reading... Uh, for this book that was part of the silent reading party which is a monthly gathering that i have in san francisco and people sit and read their books silently and um the money from donations and from buying drinks goes to a different elementary school uh every time and um increasingly young people are going to this thing and they never have any cash on them you know we're passing the hat and they always <laughs> say like can i use the latest app to put some of my imaginary money into your imaginary account. That's the only way I know how to do things. And, um, you know, I just love that. I have a teenage son and he gets his allowance in cash and it's not the way he wants. He wants his card filled up again. That's what he wants. He wants um, that imaginary money. And so it seemed when we're dealing with the tone of a folktale and a fairy tale that you would have this real sack of money. And so one of the other characters uh, is... He needs to come up with some money and she doesn't want her husband to know and the way in which she would actually do that she hawks some wedding presents you know she does this weird journey underneath what we think of as normal finance to get real money in a real bag to give to somebody uh, th that entire you know that little episode is, is like very much like something out of a fairy tale where you know uh, Gopher has to go dig a dig a hole and yeah. and go underneath and pull everybody else's food stores for the winter out from underneath and hide it, try to hide it somewhere else to give to a fox so yeah. he won't eat his babies or something. No, it's true, and it seems um, distant from reality. But the truth of the matter is, is that um, you know if you <laughs> there are still gather fox. ten. Well, and if you gathered ten random citizens and said, if by, by the end of the day you need five thousand dollars in cash. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do it? And um, it would have to be a scheme, right? If, if it was, you can't tell your family, yeah. right? <laughs> you can't just call Charles Schwab and have him send it to you. You know, you have to come up with these actual dollar bills. It's difficult. Um, and uh, for different reasons, depending on where you are, you know, it can be difficult just from the kind of way in which money is kept imaginary if you have it. And then obviously, if you don't have any money, then it's a different kind of a physical and desperate struggle but I liked the idea that um, there are a lot of people chasing the money in this book and yet the money it's like the money is very hard to find <laughs> I, I I love your character the the tech man the Vic yeah <laughs> you have a lot of fun with that guy I do I you know I really in an early draft in my head, he was the mark because the mark is what you call the victim in a con. But um, of course, there is an actual huge tycoon named Mark who everyone thinks about. And so I didn't want it to be him. I wanted it to be some idea of a tycoon. So I was um, watching Law and Order. And oh, someone, my God. Someone referred That's to the Vic, you know, I, you know like, oh, where, where's the Vic's apartment? And I was like, oh, the Vic. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I watch. I must. Uh, I'll confess that I watch a lot of Law and Order. Yeah, it's a great show. It's a great show. And when I read the Vic, I thought, boy, that they say that on Law and Order. It's the Vic. Yeah, they do. The yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm glad that, to know. <laughs> well, that show is a large part of my um, domestic arrangement. Not as much now, but um, I I first was attracted to that show. I was actually given a bunch of DVDs of the show by another guy I know when I had a baby and he sent them to me and he said this is the perfect show to watch when you're up at three in the morning feeding a baby because it's engaging enough that you're not going to fall asleep and drop the baby 
but it's not so engaging that you can't turn it off when it's time to go back to bed. And then it became this kind of insular family ritual to watch a lot of Law and Order. You know, uh, there's a there's a really a lot of interesting kind of like um, there are scenes that are funny and sweet, and then you take us into these kind of nightmarish scenarios when she's searching for the money. And there's there's one scene underneath the mansion of the Vic where there's a cage. Uh, that is just like truly terrifying, and I think that shows the power of not of not saying too much. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, I mean, I, I think one thing that literature can do really well over the other narrative art forms is, um, it's much easier to have missing information, you know, that in a, in a movie you can have a shot that obscures something, but kind of eventually you need some revelation. And as we all know, it's often the last 20 minutes of a scary movie that stopped being scary because they're finally showing you whatever <laughs> yeah. thing has been plaguing our poor victims. And it's not as scary as it was in our head. It never is. No. Right? No matter if it's made of cardboard or made of the latest kind of digital animation. And, um, and so I think it's, I mean, scary books, when they do it well, are 10 times scarier because they're, they it's very easy to leave that information out. And so it's true. She's um, led into a basement room and there's a cage and um, it's very nerve wracking. And I think also that um, it's a very, I mean, I think it's a very powerfully female experience often that um, I think when men think of the pitfalls of dating and a new relationship, it's that something doesn't go well and women sensibly have more to fear in that and so that sense of that she's kind of it's early in her relationship with this guy and he, he wants her to see something really cool and then it's in a basement she doesn't no one knows she's there it's a very nerve-wracking feeling um i spent uh, part of my honeymoon in iceland and when you go outside of the cities in iceland it's really only Reykjavik but when you go out into the country, there's a sign that says, does anyone know you are going this way? And I often think that when I'm in some slightly spooky situation, I think no one knows that I'm here. I've gone down this hallway or I followed this person and maybe no, someone knows what city I'm in, but I'm, I'm a little, I'm all by myself here. And I think that um, in early romance, there's more fear of that among women, certainly. Does anyone know you're going this way? That sounds best t-shirt I've ever heard of. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a real, um, the culture of extreme weather is always interesting to me. You know, any place where it's, it gets really, really cold or really, really hot or the weather is otherwise extreme, there are different cultural assumptions about that. If you are in Canada in the winter and you see someone with car trouble on the side of the road, you stop because there's a time element there. You cannot be in an isolated car in the freezing cold for a certain amount of time. You know, in California... We're like, oh, poor guy. Yeah, good luck to you. <laughs> in fact, if, if you had trouble with your car and someone pulled over, you would think, I'm in trouble now. Yeah. You wouldn't think, thank goodness you're here. And um, yeah, so I think of that often. Does anyone know you are going this way? And my wife and I will say to each other all the time when we're, you know, looking for the restaurant when we're meeting people and we're suddenly in a shady alley or um, some other questionable thing happens to us. You mentioned something I thought that I thought about a lot when I was reading Bottle Grove, which is the things that literature can do that cannot be in any way duplicated in any other art form. And that's because as a reader, it requires an effort. You, you're putting a fair amount of effort into reading those words, putting them in your mind and strength, turning them into a story. So I, I think that this book in particular is just packed with those moments. Is that something you seek to do? Is that something you can do uh, consciously or does that just happen unconsciously when you're writing? Um, I guess both. I mean, I think that if you're in the um, world of making literature, you have to face that to a certain extent. You're in competition with the other forms of culture that are available to people. And so um, for me, the books that I like best are kind of bookish. 
mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's and it's strange because now we're in a culture where if someone calls a novel unfilmable, it's kind of an insult, right? <laughs> but but it is actually a compliment. What it means is yeah. this is doing a thing that we can't do over here in this kind of culture, and um, and I think increasingly the most um, successful novels, certainly successful artistically and with audiences, have that um, that bookishness that sense of connection and there's an infinite number of ways to do it but um i think for me to try to think about how something can seem really light and then really scary and um, kind of move you in those modes was something that i definitely kept my eye on and and that's another thing that you know if a movie is scary and there's a scene where nothing scary is going on. You know, it's just a break or an introduction, <laughs> and so it, you don't you don't feel happy. You feel kind of relieved, but you don't, you know, you're not in fully embedded in that happiness. And that's not how you experience a novel. Like when you're reading a novel and the happy part, you are entirely happy. You're totally immersed in that part. And so I think that's the one of the powers that literature has over um, some of the other things we have. And you're... on the other hand, you can't do a jump scare in a book. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> in a movie, you can have somebody come out from the yeah. side and you go, ah, but if you say, and then suddenly there was a big thunk, no one is, that doesn't frighten you. Spring loaded cat is not going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> that said, I think uh, you were talking about uh, fairy tales, and I think the fairy tales of Miss were originally kind of like warning stories, you know, don't go out at night, children, because you'll die. <laughs> Well, I mean, there was some of that, I think, in um, kind of 19th century and and thereabouts where some of the old stories were corralled into that. But I mean, you know, if you go back and read the original stories of the Brothers Grimm that they collected from just stories that people were telling, mm-hmm. they often have no real rhyme nor reason. And there's always assumed to be kind of a moral of these things. But when you look closely at the stories they don't really offer that moral right it's like hansel mm-hmm. and gretel they have a wicked stepmother she's going to kill them so they leave they get lost in the woods they come across a witch she captures them and then they get out through kind of a scheme it's kind of a miracle right the witch can't see very well so they can fool her and then they get out and then they run home and what is the moral of that story like look out for who your father dates you know there's not and it's kind of it has the shape and the texture of some warning to children if you run in the woods you know if you get lost in the woods you don't know you can be threatened at any time like these things which are true but there's no path to get out of them right Right. (laughs) if your stepmother's gonna murder you you probably should run away and if there's only you can only run away in the woods you're probably gonna get lost so then whose fault is that you haven't learned any lesson um and I think really that the old stories, when you trace them back and it, in any culture, if you go back far enough, they're just really old, weird stories that don't present to us any obvious moral, you know, and I would challenge anyone to read Gilgamesh and come back with a real strong life lesson that they can apply to their daily situation. Um, and, uh, So there's, I mean, certainly there has, and there still is a notion of attaching cautionary and otherwise inspiring tales, particularly for young people, to weird old stories. But the weird old stories resist that pretty well. Now, um, one of the aspects of this book that I like the most, I think you did did a wonderful job at at, uh, weaving the supernatural aspects of it in and out. And I'm wondering, was that how much of that was at the service of the plot and how much of that was at the service of your, you know, psyche, as it were? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think I have been writing long enough that I hope I have a good ear for the kind of rhythm of the thing, you know, that we've spent a little time here. It might be time to go spend some time over here now. And um, because there's so much unpredictability and the novel of people's behavior and a changing um, setting and, um, you know, kind of a con game of divided loyalties going on and secrets that people are keeping from each other. Um, but, you know, I, I knew that those had to switch off kind of quicker. Um, 
but the supernatural, I think, is, um, you know, a little goes a long way mm -hmm. in a story. And then I like that as in life, when something really, really strange happens to you, and it kind of consumes you for a while, and then you just have to put it aside, right? And that, it's one of the things I like about any conversation about kind of weird things happening over quasi-supernatural nature is that everyone has some story of, mm -hmm. this happened to me, I can't explain it, but they don't, they haven't spent the rest of their life thinking about it for the most part. They remember it and then they put it away. And that, so I think there's that experience in the book. There's a really weird thing that happens at the wedding, but it's a wedding. So people go on, you're still married and this thing has happened and you're not really sure what it is. And then when it comes back again in kind of a different form, you think, what was that that I saw before? So there's a strange thing happens in the basement of a bar, a strange thing happens in a park. Strange things happen out on a city city street. You have this um, return of the unnatural that um, I think I hope feels like it does in life, which is that it it's really strange, and then because it's so strange, and you have no place to put it, and you kind of dismiss it and almost forget it for a while. And you were talking about stories, and this book is really, really involved in story the stories that people tell one another the stories they tell themselves every let me tell you this little story about the wedding the wedding itself is a story and it leads to these other stories uh, i think that that you know vision of humans as a as what i call us a narrative species uh is really um that's it feels really true and really interesting and intricate you get it's a short novel, but it feels that it's packed with uh, really interesting things and packed in a way that, that's fun and exciting to read. Uh, thank you. I really like these questions that are compliments. Oh. That's right. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I think... it. I mean, stories are so often the currency and the ritual by which we know people, right? That someone seems interesting to you and then you go to coffee with them, you have lunch with them, you take a walk with them. And what is it you tell? You start telling stories. And if the first story you hear about someone's spouse is a sweet and romantic story, something that they do for them all the time, you get a happy picture of that relationship. If the first story is some disastrous thing that happened, you get another picture. And um, the stories that we decide are emblematic about someone as opposed to the stories that are asymptomatic, that don't really go with our vision of the person. All those things are interesting to me. And then um, as I was uh, working on this book and thinking about marriage, I kind of hit the age where um, friends of mine were getting divorced. And you often don't really know about friends' marriages until they're over because then they tell you some story about something that happened <laughs> and how it's some fight that they can't get over or some issue that they can't resolve. And... Um, those are really interesting to me. So, and then at one point, of course, stories are what everybody's telling in a bar too. So there's a scene, it's <laughs> my friend's favorite scene in the book is when um, there's a conversation going into a bar and then just someone talks about a mugging and then suddenly everybody's sharing their mugging stories because that's how those <laughs> situations go. And the whole thread of what people really wanted to talk about, it just vanishes and everyone talking about us, everyone wants to tell their story of getting mugged. Everyone wants to tell their small crime story. And, um, I, you know, I, I love that. It happens, uh, I mean, I'm not such a regular in bars, but it happens um, at dinner parties and other social gatherings. You know, just there's certain kinds of stories that when somebody tells it, then everybody's got to tell theirs. Um, and so I let, you know, I, I agree with you. We're a, we're a narrative species. We're made of stories. Uh you know, I, I think that this book does a really good job of giving this the culture clash because that is happening in San Francisco and really pretty much anywhere in America. It does a great job of giving that a character and a feel that is both humorous and dangerous at the same time. And... I mean, I think to try to capture culture class in San Francisco, you would need, a, you know, a sequence of novels that Balzac wouldn't be up for <laughs> starting. I mean, there's so many different people in here and um, and in the city. And so um, 
even the topics covered in this book of kind of a, a rising tech industry and the gentrification of some neighborhoods and the income inequality that we see. Um, I mean, those are central to many people in San Francisco, but then there's all kinds of, um, you know, the challenges of Chinatown and the, um, the politics of immigration and the restaurant industry. And there, you know, there's so many other things that are untouched in this novel that, um, that are so central to so many people's lives in San Francisco. And I think that's, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love living in a city like San Francisco. Um, and so I don't know how you could really try to write something that was about the city and not have some kind of culture clash in one way or another. You know, even when you go to what feels like the most isolated parts of San Francisco, if you go deep into the sunset, <laughs> you still see kind of Russian immigrants and surfers eyeing each other nervously about <laughs> whose neighborhood it is. So I don't think that's something to be to escape, no. In, in creating uh, the characters for this novel, you go across, you know, uh, a pretty wide variety of incomes and, and I guess, you know, the, the economic culture that comes with, with every income. We, we tend to like to think of uh, culture as being something that's ethnic or, you know, based on country of origin or something. But more and more, your, your cultural culture is defined by your economic status. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think um, in San Francisco, the income disparity seems like such a huge marker. Um, I don't, uh, you know, whether it is more enormous than ethnicity or or race is um, probably a longer question than uh, <laughs> as as we say in our household. But it's a two drink question. <laughs> um, but I do think that. Um, uh, that watching a city get wealthy in certain tiny but powerful parts and um, other parts suffer as a result of that is hard to miss when you're walking around San Francisco. Um, I always remember years ago, uh, I heard Lawrence Ferlinghetti read a poem that said, uh, rising tide lifts all boats if you have a boat, if you have a boat, if you have a boat. <laughs> and that, um, I think of those lines all the time. <laughs> you uh, mentioned that uh, the sequence of novels that would capture the conflicts in San Francisco would challenge Balzac. Are, are, you, are you going to be following through on that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, I have a kind of a informal contest with my pal, uh, Andrew Sean Greer, about writing the quintessential San Francisco novel because we both really oh, love this city. Yeah. and. Um, We've both put in our entries, and I think I, it would surprise me if neither of us uh, wrote about San Francisco again. I'm sure we both will. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I like about this city is that it is so multifaceted that um, the, the notion of a perfect San Francisco novel or an encompassing San Francisco novel is only going to be an argument, you know? <laughs> it's, is it Charlie Jane Anders or is it Amy Tan, you know? Is it... Um, uh, Jack Kerouac, you know, or uh, is it Kathy Acker? And I think there's um, so many threads of San Francisco that I don't think it can be captured. And I think it's, that isn't true of a lot of other cities. I think that there's some, you know, cities that could have a kind of quintessential big long book written about them. I think in the case of San Francisco, it would just be, it's kind of every little thread. Fighting words. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, ha, have you started a new novel? I have, yeah. I um, I'm kind of. I mean, I I like to write a lot. So I um, what I generally do is I work on a first draft of one book and then I put it aside, and then a first draft of another book and I put it aside, and so um, then I have kind of a magic box of first drafts that I get to go and <laughs> oh nice figure out if they work. So I'm in the middle of filling that box now. Um, and I will, I don't like to say much ever about what I'm working on, but um, I was really attracted by a location and I saw the location once as kind of a tourist and then I went back there to look at it as a book and someone was t telling me about it and they were very, um, they said, I will show you around this location, but you cannot, the book has to be so fictional as to make this location 
indiscernible, which was a fair deal. And so that's why I'm not revealing it. Um, but so I spent all day with this person and they were showing me around. And then I was literally getting in my rental car. She was putting them in my, in my rental car. And I said, oh yeah, what's that building over there? And she said, that's where the witch lives. <laughs> and I said, I was here all day. You know I'm working on a novel. And you just, you skip. So I had to get back out of the car and say like, what? <laughs> and um, so that's the novel I'm working on. <laughs> well, that sounds uh, wonderful. You know, this has elements of genre fiction, but it doesn't feel like genre fiction. And so I'm wondering how you how you approach that, or or how you feel about that. Well, I mean, I like genre a lot. I don't have one genre that I um, can have. You know, I don't. I, I'm not Robert B. Parker or something mm-hmm. who have found my thing and I want to st- stick with my thing. And um, I like moving around. And then I always think what happens to so many genres is that um, when people get excited about a book, they like to promote it out of the genre, Mm -hmm. right? And so (laughs) once you decide that Margaret Atwood isn't a sci-fi writer and Mm -hmm. you promote her, so, oh, you can't call her a sci-fi writer, you have to call her something else. And then you begin to say, well, sci-fi doesn't really have any truly great writers. And you think, (laughs) if you keep deciding (laughs) that you're promoting them, then of course they don't have any great writers. And I think horror is another example of that, right? It's um, that there's so many books that are scary and have touches of the supernatural. And if you say, oh, those don't really count as horror novels, or those don't really count as fantasy, then of course what's left is going to be kind of shallow because everything interesting you're promoting out of there. So I like that dance of the genre. and uh, yeah, so I'm I'm sure I'll keep bumming around the outskirts. The new novel by Daniel Handler is Bottle Grove. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.